Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Great. Um, we are finishing our series in 2 Corinthians this morning. And so if you do have a Bible, you can take it out and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been going through uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians. It's been the whole year. And, uh, and we finally got to the end of 2 Corinthians. And so um, it's been a, a wonderful journey. And in some ways, this sermon is going to be a, a summary of uh, where we've been through the last uh, six months of journeying through 2 Corinthians. And so let me read the text. I'm going to read the first four verses, then I will pause, and then uh, we'll read the rest together. So Paul starts in chapter 13, verse 1. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And there is a little bit of anxiety in his tone. There's a little bit of trepidation. But there's also pointed passion. In other words, what you want to see here is that he's, he's, he's saying, listen, I'm coming, and you better sort things out. There's a fatherly tone here, and so I want you to see this fatherly concern. There's, 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 um, there's a concern, and there's a care, and there is passion, because he wants things to be sorted out. He wants to come and have a good time with them. It's the third visit, and, uh, and he wants to enjoy it. He doesn't want to have to sort things out again. So let's see. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge, so in other words, well, if there are issues, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent. As I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. So you better sort things out, right? Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul is flexing some muscle here. Paul has been gracious Paul is an apostle of Christ. Paul has been commissioned by Christ himself with authority to set churches in order, to to direct churches, to correct churches, to to govern and guard churches, and false apostles have come in. And now Paul's going back on a third visit, and he's really, really keen that they sort out their mess. So the question is, how will he find them? How will he find them? Will they have listened? Will they have taken note? Will they have paid attention to his second visit? Will they have paid attention to his second letter? Paul starts off here. He says, please sort out the mess so we can move on to better things. He's warning them. He's warning them. He says, listen, previously you may have thought I was weak. Well, that's not what you're going to get when I come again. Let's not go back there. Let's move on. And so here's his warning. His warning is clear and it's concise. We pick it up again in verse 5. He says, examine yourselves. So before I come, just, let's just do this. Let's, as a church, let's do this together. Let's examine ourselves. Stop examining everyone else. Stop examining me, he's saying. There's a bit of irony here, you'll see. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? 
unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. Bit of tongue-in-cheek there. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Again, tongue-in-cheek. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Well, there is the end of 2 Corinthians. What Paul is doing here is a final plea for maturity. We called this series 2 Corinthians Lessons from a Maturing Church. And if they do listen, and if they do take this letter on board, and if they do apply it to their lives, and if they do what he says, examine yourself, take your eyes off anybody else, take your eyes off the apostles, take your eyes off one another, it's time to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Verse 5 is kind of the central command in this chapter. The central command, have a look at it again, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that you are in Christ, he says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now, there could be a misunderstanding here. Paul is not arguing or doubting their salvation. He's not arguing that they could lose their salvation. This is an impossibility. If you are saved, you will remain saved. God doesn't make mistakes. The work he starts, he finishes. So why is, he, why is he saying it this way? Well, he's saying it this way because he assumes that they are and they need to be reminded. He says, do you not realize this about yourselves? So the problem is they're not realizing it. Not that they don't have it, but they've forgotten it, that they, they've got swept up in the false apostles' teachings, that they've strayed from the original foundation. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? It's actually an affirmation of their salvation. So what is the test then? What is the self-examination? Well, the self-examination is a, a, a play of some irony here. Because up to this point, they've been examining Paul. They've put Paul on trial. They've put Paul to the test. And so Paul grabs the gun from them and he turns it on themselves and he says, all right, let's play this game. You examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Now, the word the faith here actually is technical. It's the same word that Paul uses throughout his testaments for faith. But the way he places it here, the faith is not really your own personal subjective faith. What he actually means here is the objective body of truth. The Christian faith. Because if they examine themselves and they come to the conclusion that they are in the faith, that they're not in Judaism, that they haven't swung to, to back to Corinthian paganism, 
that they haven't been swept up in these false super apostles, but that they're actually in the orthodox Christian faith, what they will realize if they come to that conclusion is where did they get this faith from? Who preached it to them? Can you see what Paul's doing? Because their conclusion is if it is true faith and if it is the true Christian faith, then they got it from Paul. And so they solve their own problem. Is he legitimate? Is he a true apostle? And he says, well, okay, examine. What is it that you believe? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he lived and that he died and that he rose and that he ascended and that the Spirit of God was poured out? And if you come to that conclusion, the only way you know all of this is because Paul came to Corinth, Paul planted the church, Paul preached the true gospel. Well done, he's real. He's legit. He's a true apostle. So Paul engages in some irony. Paul himself was tested by these men. Paul himself was tested by this church. He was being scrutinized, and now he turns it on them. Now, what he doesn't do is give us, for example, five questions. That would have been cool. That would have been really helpful. You know, what are the things that we need to examine what are the things that we need to consider? What are the kind of big things? Now, we don't find it in this particular passage. There may be some hints, which I'm going to hint at. For example, one thing that I think we see here in verse 10, have a look at this. He says, for this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you. Now, what he's saying here is not just chapter 13, but everything he's written. Everything he's written. He's saying it's for this reason that you may self-examine to see whether you're in the faith. Are you actually really a maturing Christian? Here, here are some of the things you need to consider. All the things I've written about. <laughs> Everything I've written about. Go back to what I've written. Not what others have written. Not what's written in the stars or in the tabloid. Go back to what the Apostle Paul has written. In other words, for us today, go back to the New Testament. What has he said? Examine everything the Apostle Paul has said. And so this is what he's saying. For this reason, I write these things. It's not a subjective thing. It's an objective thing. It's written. It's written down for our instruction. It's clear. It's not obscure. It's not some secret hidden knowledge. It's not some, some preferred knowledge. It's not some kind of internalized knowledge. No, no. It's written. It's written down. It's written in the pages of Scripture. So what I want to do to conclude this series is I want to survey, and I've done all the hard work for you. You can go and do it. I want to survey what are the big categories. What are the big categories if we had to examine, are we a maturing people? Are we a people of the Christian faith? What are the big categories that Paul wants to press on the church that will help them to navigate whether they truly are in the faith? And I would submit to you that there are three main categories that we see scattered throughout his epistles, but particularly to Corinthians, and these are them. There is a theological maturity that needs to be there. There needs a, an ethical maturity that needs to be in place, and there is an emotional maturity that he is calling for. Theological, ethical, and emotional. Let's look at each one. Theological maturity. We could, we could call this belief. What is it that you believe? Why is this important? Well, because there were false teachers and they were being led astray. Remember, he spoke about 
Don't get caught up in another gospel. Don't follow another Jesus. For example, in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verse 17, Paul says this, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. We don't do that. We don't mess with God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We don't edit the scriptures. We don't edit God's word. We are not editors. We are messengers. But, but what's the force of this? Well, the force of this, again, is verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You see, what Paul is aiming for here is theological maturity, that you are actually convinced that the Word of God is, in fact, the Word of God, and more than that, that you're actually willing to submit to that. Because here's the battle. The battle for the Corinthians, and it's the battle of the ages, and it's the battle for our culture today, is what's going to be the highest authority? Are you going to be the highest authority, or is the Word of God going to be the highest authority in your life? That's the actual struggle. And theological maturity is when we get to the point where we acknowledge that the Bible, the Scriptures, is the highest authority in my life. And therefore, the conclusion is I cease from trying to bend the Scriptures to suit my life, but I bend my life to suit the Scriptures. Because the Scripture holds the final say. Now, when I was thinking through this, the, the funny thing is, what I'm arguing for here is a radical commitment to the Bible. And it dawned on me that submitting our lives to the Word of God isn't actually radical Christianity, it's actually basic Christianity. Have you ever thought that? You know, we, we, we think, oh, you know, if you're actually a Bible-believing Christian, that that's radical. No, no, it's basic. <laughs> that's actually Christianity 101. But it sets us on a trajectory of spiritual maturity. And I want to say that if you want to be rebellious, because somehow our culture likes this, you know, for you to stand out from everyone else, how about just living under the authority of God? Just take the Word of God and apply it to your life. He hints at this in chapter 13, verse 8. He says, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. The hint here is that there is truth. The, uh, the world today and then didn't like that because truth was your truth or my truth, and we define truth. And Paul says, No, that's not how it works. Theological maturity is that there is a body of truth. There is a body of faith. The Christian faith has a body of orthodox truth that we hold to. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is only one truth. He says something about this in, in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways... What ways are these? Well, he goes on. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. So, so tampering with God's word, you know, putting words in God's mouth, twisting the scriptures, Paul says, is disgraceful. 
It's disgraceful. It is underhanded. He says we refuse to do that. Al Mohler, a a great apologist theologian, he says this. He says, rejecting God's self-revelation in favor of our own idea about what he would or wouldn't do is the height of self-righteous pride. Now, what we see in 2 Corinthians emerge is not just the importance of a high view of Scripture, but actually what we see in 2 Corinthians is Paul says, that's all good in theory, but how about in practice? You know, that's, that's something we all live with. You know, oh, it's good in theory, but what about in practice? What about in the real nitty-gritties of life? And then Paul presents us with examples, and the supreme example of a high view of God is how do we cope when we suffer? And this has been a major theme throughout 2 Corinthians. And this is where theological maturity is really tested. How do we understand the sovereignty of God and suffering? How do we cope when we go through trials? And so Paul would write something like this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Remember that? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Listen to what he says here. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. How is that possible? How can you be afflicted, but not disappointed? How can you be perplexed? How can you be persecuted? How can you be struck down? And every time Paul comes back and he says, but it hasn't destroyed us. It hasn't perplexed us. It hasn't, it hasn't derailed my faith. I'm not, I'm not deconstructing my faith now because I've been afflicted or because I've gone through a hardship, or because God's not like a, a, you know, uh, what's those machines you put the money in and then you, slot machine, God's not my slot machine. How is this possible? And the only way it's possible is because he has a high God, big God, theological maturity. The Bible doesn't make light of our trials. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't make light of our pain. But the Bible wants us to see that God is sovereign over our trials. That God is able to work in and through our trials. That actually God is close to the brokenhearted. And that God is a healer and a comforter. Which is why he says this in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Blessed be God and Father our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. You see, that's how Paul gets through it. This is how Paul is able to get through affliction and hardship and persecution. He doesn't give in his theology. No, no, his theology kicks in and he sees that God is sovereign over all of his trials. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, as hard as it is, to discern God's loving and wise purposes. And that's what we struggle with, right? When we go through hardship, when we go through trials, it's like, where is God? How can this be God's loving and wise purpose? He acknowledges it's difficult to discern that. He says, as hard as it is to discern God's loving and wise purposes behind many of our trials, it would be, here is his conclusion, it would be even more hopeless to imagine that he had no control over them or that our sufferings are random and meaningless. 
We need a big God theology. Technically, we need to know the sovereignty of God over all things. If you want to be on a trajectory of a maturing believer, you need to wrestle through these deep end theological truths because they're going to galvanize you so that when you are afflicted, you're not crushed. So that when you are persecuted, you're not forsaken. So that when you are struck down, you're not destroyed. How is that possible? Because you know God. And you know that he's got a purpose and a plan. And he's able to turn all things for our good and for his glory. So this is the first thing he presses on us. Theological maturity. It's critical. The second thing is ethical maturity. We move here from be belief, important belief, to important behavior. How do we know that you're a truly spiritual person? How do you know that you are really a Christian? Well, there is behavior. There is a change of not only thinking, but a change of living. We have to not only acknowledge that the Word of God is true, but we actually have to live out the Word. It's not that we only come under the authority of Scripture, but actually we live out and we apply the authority of Scripture. He hints at this in verse 7. He says, We pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. And I thought that was interesting. There he says, right and wrong. There is right and wrong. There are ethical standards. And Christian we believe that. We still do. We haven't given up on that. But our world wants to. Our world wants to blur it, blur the lines, blur the edges. And I want to call us, and I, I think Paul is calling us here, to, to say that Christian maturity is clear on what is right and what is wrong. And we need to be clear about what's right and wrong. What do I mean? Well, there is a thing called sin. We don't like to call it sin these days. You know, we call it weakness, or we call it, you know, my issue, or something, something because we want to domesticate it. And, and you know what's crazy? It's, it's, today, you are, it seems worse to call out sin than to do sin. Have you noticed that? If you judge someone for their sin or, or for evil, if you, if you call something evil, that's wrong, it's worse to do that than to do the wrong. How crazy is it that that's our world? And what's happening is that there is no ethical maturity because we've created a cartoon version of Jesus who doesn't hate anything. We've got a cartoon version of Jesus who just loves everything. That's not true. Christian maturity results in a clarity around what's right and what's wrong. And how do we know? Well, it comes back to point one. The Bible, the Word of God tells us. And the reason this is important is because sin is still sin and it is destructive both ethically and eternally. Listen to C.S. Lewis's argument about right and wrong. I've always found this very helpful. He says, My argument 
against God. He was an atheist. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. And then he says, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? His argument is, if I'm outraged at immorality, if I'm outraged at evil, where is that outrage coming from? By what standard am I comparing it? Because if there is a moral standard, then there must be a moral lawgiver. Where do I get this conviction from? And so he argued himself into the faith. And so Christian, we need to not be afraid of being clear on what the Bible says is right and what the Bible says is wrong. But I want to say this at the same time. We can still be nice people while doing that, right? Because sometimes we, we, we take the truth of the morality of Scripture or the ethics of Scripture, and we, we, we use them as bricks and we throw them at people. And we can't do that. Which leads me to my third point, and that is emotional maturity. How do we deal with these things? But before we get there, let me just, let me just say, I want to say we can be clear on what's right and what's wrong. We can be clear on biblical ethics, but we still need to be good people, nice people, kind people. Don't take the truth and use them as bricks. Take the truth and use it as bread to feed people. Ethical morality and ethical maturity is when we are more offended at our own sin than everyone else's sin. That we are able to examine our own hearts and go, where have I gone wrong? And I'm more offended by my own wrongdoing than others' wrongdoing. And so Paul would argue in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then finally, emotional maturity. I find it interesting the way Paul ends this letter. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. There is a real sense and tone here of love and concern and care and unity and effort and striving. And I get the picture here that there have been issues, there have been problems, but actually they're have a mature understanding of where they've been and where they're coming to and where they're going. That, that actually spiritual maturity is actually seen in our relationships. Let me say this. The, the level of our offendability, how quickly we get offended, is often related to our level of maturity. Some people say, oh, well, you know, it's just my personality to be grumpy all the time. I don't feel like being loving. Well, as a Christian, we don't live according to our feelings. We're not dictated to by our feelings. We may acknowledge them, 
but they don't determine our emotional responses. We're not dictated to. Our relationships are not dictated to by our feelings. No, no. We, we submit ourselves to the instruction of Scripture. Brothers, rejoice, he says. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. The implication is, yes, there are struggles, and yes, there's reason to be grumpy and sad, but rejoice and, and work towards restoration. And then he goes on to the one another's comfort one another. You know, don't just, don't just do it at arm's length. Actually be there for one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. He's aiming for unity. Let live in peace. I mean, even, even kiss one another. That was an, an ancient greeting, even like some Greeks do today. So it, wasn't, it was a cultural thing. It's not a spiritual thing. But the emotional maturity is calling for here is that there is a willingness to be the church. There is a willingness and a maturity that even though you've been offended and even though you've been hurt and maybe even though you've been disappointed, you can comfort one another and greet one another and, and be there for one another and serve one another and love on one another. And if you can't, well, then there's an emotional immaturity. And you need to go through the first step and then the second step and then the third step. And so how does he end? Well, he ends beautifully. He ends with this beautiful benediction. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. How Paul ends here is with profound theology. He ends with big God theology. He ends with a description of the Trinity. One of the clearest, most beautiful descriptions of the Trinity, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And there is a sense in which we see logos, we see the word of God, Jesus Christ, we see um, ethos, we see the love of God the Father, an emotion, and we see pathos, we see a unity around the fellowship of the Spirit. And it's quite interesting because commentators say, some commentators say that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is, is not necessarily the individual fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, but it's our community together that we're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit and therefore we have fellowship with one another. And I think in some ways his benediction here is not separate from his whole argument that there needs to be a big God theology, that there needs to be right behavior, and there needs to be an emotional maturity so that you can have fellowship. And so I think he almost brings all of these things together. He brings together belief, he brings together behavior, loving community, and he brings together belonging. Belonging in this beautiful benediction we not only have big God theology, but we have a big, mature people living it out. I love what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, it's not enough to be told that honey is sweet. We must taste it to really know its sweetness. And I think that's what he's aiming at here. He wants us to know about the Trinitarian unity of God and that theological maturity is critically important, but so too is emotional maturity. So too is ethical maturity. It's not enough just to know about honey. Have you tasted it? Do you know God and do you experience God? 
That's emotional, spiritual maturity, is that I um, come under the Scriptures, but also it's not just academic. I, I delight in it. There's actually a unity, and there's actually a sense of experience. I know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore I'm a gracious person. I know the love of God, and so I can be a loving person, and I know the fellowship is precious to God, my own fellowship with God and the fellowship of God's people. Examine yourselves to know whether you are in the faith. This is my prayer for us, church. My prayer for us is that we'd be a maturing people. You might be sitting there thinking, oh, I don't, I don't know if I'm maturing. I don't know if I'm growing in any of these areas. And it's okay because, you know, if you take your, if you take your pulse for one second, only one second, you're dead, Right? That's not how we measure maturity. You, you, you take your pulse over time. And I want to say there is a pulse. We're alive. But we've got, we got work to do. Amen? I want us to pray. We're going to sing together. And then I want us to pray after singing. And we're going to pray, God, grow us. Grow us in our theological maturity. Grow us in our ethical and grow us emotionally that we'd be a people who bring you glory. All right, let's stand together. Music team, I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for teaching us through 2 Corinthians what it looks like to be a maturing people. Lord, I want to pray that we would know the joy of big God theology. We'd know the joy and the rest and the peace that comes from knowing that you are sovereign. That in all the struggles and pains of life and all the, the persecutions of wanting to compromise on what's right and what's wrong, Lord, may we, may we have confidence and may we have courage. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are growing and maturing but also delighting tasting tasting and seeing that you truly are good Lord we long to know more about you we long to understand you more we long to to dive deep into the depths of knowing who you are but we don't ever want that to be apart from from tasting and experiencing you So we do pray that with the grace, the incredible grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal, unending love of God the Father would flood our hearts and that we would know the closeness, the communion of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of the saints. And for this to be true and for it to be ongoing and for it to be growing and advancing, Lord, we we commit ourselves to these things. And we pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us. That you would mature us as we examine ourselves. As we allow the word of God to search our hearts. That you would strengthen us in our belief. That you would strengthen us in our behavior. And that you would strengthen us in our belonging. Thank you that we have a new identity, that we are your children, we are your people.
bind us together with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's sing.